You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. Good morning. It's Michelle Camayo back for another weekly episode. This week, we're going to discuss a little bit of benefits and a little bit of property and casualty. So I'm excited. This is a, a, a new topic for us. We've had employment attorneys join us. We've had uh, Bob from Benefit Comply. And this week, we have Jonathan Schrader from Bolton & Company. He's an executive vice president with us. And Jonathan, there's probably some people on the line that know you, but for those that don't know you, will you tell us a little bit about what you do here at Bolton? Sure, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me to join you. Um, I'm executive vice president on the property casualty side. So I oversee the workers' comp directors and officers, employment practices, those lines of coverage that affect the business. And uh, we try to approach it more from a risk management perspective that we'll get into a second. Uh, I primarily serve schools through our education practice group, but I'm also a bit of a generalist. Uh, having gotten my MBA from UCLA Anderson, uh, I support that community with insurance and risk management information as well. So that's my day job. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Sure. So we both work with employers on a daily basis that either, you know, from my standpoint, I work with employers who want to be compliant. And Jonathan, you work with employers on a daily basis to consult with regards to property and casualty insurance. And, and we had these practical discussions with employers. We don't give legal advice. And, and so anything we talk about today, any kind of discussion that you're hearing today as a listener, just stay tuned for clarifications on topics because the legislation that's being pushed out during this time period, it's, it, it's being pushed out so quickly that those that are writing the bills are writing it without giving it, without having the proper time to make the language clear. So what happens is this legislation goes out, not everything is super clear, so then we have to wait for the DOL or wait for you know HHS to release guidance kind of clarifying some of these topics. So you know, bottom line, please always stay tuned for clarifications that come up after this webinar has ended. Our objective today is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. Now, I know that HR leaders, business owners, everyone wants validation on what they've read. They want that second set of eyes because everything is so new, there's not precedent for it. And you may want some guidance where none may exist at this point because there's maybe the legislation so new. So our hope is that this is a weekly conversation that provides a little bit of that validation, that second set of eyes, and some guidance for you. All right, so let's get into it. The agenda this week is what we always hear. We start off with some updates, key topics, and then in today's episode, of course, we'll have our segment, the toilet paper talk, a review of things that have become incredibly relevant, just like toilet paper. And then we'll go into a guidance wish list, which we do every week as well. Here are some highlights from last week. A few things. For benefits, the PCORI fees, the Form 720 was released. PCORI fees are due at the end of July. I released a blog and a compliance alert on PCORI fees 
So if you're wondering, okay, what is this and do I owe it? This is for self-insured medical plans or any employers that have an HRA. You will need to pay PCORI fees. And we were waiting for the updated Form 720 to be released, and we now have it. So that's good news for those employers who have a payment due at the end of July. I just saw this this morning, last night or yesterday, the EEOC says the employer cannot require COVID-19 antibody testing. Now, the employer can, of course, require uh, testing, COVID-19 testing, but not the antibody testing. I don't know uh, if any employer was planning on requiring that, but if you were, that's part of your, your return to work plan, note that the EOC has come out and publicly said, no, you cannot require antibody testing. I thought the next two might be helpful for the listeners on the line. The, there is a summary out there of the county by county in California, a summary of face mask requirements and temperature checks and other workplace screening rules. There's a spreadsheet floating out there from, from none other than Fisher Phillips which I've had Fisher Phillips, I've had Nicole Cam from Fisher Phillips um, on this, this podcast a few different times. Fisher Phillips is a wonderful partner. You can go right now to this website and pull down a county-by-county county summary, uh, which counties require face masks and temperature checks or symptom checks and the like. Also, if you're an employer in California and you are measuring temperature, if you're taking temperature, I believe we are calling it temping, there is a model CCPA COVID-19 notice that is required for taking temperature. And you can also download that at no cost from the Fisher Phillips website. And I've got the link there. Okay, and this one, this just came out yesterday too. So Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about this? Uh, the workers' compensation, sure. So there's been a lot of questions as it relates to COVID-19 as to how the work comp world will respond to COVID claims uh, for employees. Um, the, the barometer is still what we, the acronym AOE-COE, AOE, arising out of employment or in the course of employment. So there still has to be a demonstration that the, the virus was caught arising out of the employment of the course of the employment. But this good news from the, um, from the DOI and the insurance commissioner um, will allow the carriers to reevaluate how those claims, if they are filed, are evaluated in future calculations of the XMOD. Um, so specifically, three of the key changes were um, any claims relating uh, to COVID-19 diagnosis will be eliminated from the XMOD calculation. Um, the carriers will be ultimately making the decision on how they're going to code these claims as COVID uh, to, to regarding the potential exclusion, but those that are covered under COVID coverage, uh, those, those claims values will be eliminated. Um, they'll exclude payroll uh, from premium calculation for furloughed employees during and until 30 days uh, of the statewide state order. Um, so you will not be held accountable for payroll paid to furloughed employees during that time. Um, and the last is for those that are reclassifying their employees because their job duties have changed because of the restrictions to more of a clerical classification, they will allow for that reclassification of payroll as a clerical class code um, for those temporary job changes during and until 60 days after the statewide stay-at-home order as well. 
Um, so these are positives because they should have an impact on work comp premium moving forward. So essentially, can, I mean, I, I don't know enough about workers comp, but if I'm reading this, I'm saying, okay, well, the, this, this pandemic for the purposes of workers comp is not going to affect someone's XMOD calculation at all. Correct. Based on, and, and, based on this. So what, am I reading that right or, or is yeah. it not that easy? <laughs> no, that's correct. So in essence, in, in the event, our work, it's deemed that an employee, for example, got um, uh, the virus in the course of employment and it will be as such it'll be covered by our work comp carrier for their hospital mm -hmm. bills etc that calculation that valuation will not be included as they calculate the x mod we can go into a quick explanation of how x mods are calculated um, for those in california specifically but an x mod just as a recap is a, an evaluation uh, it's sort of like a golf index handicap score those that perform well with um, few claims, few losses, have a low X mod, and it helps you reduce your work comp premium. For those that have had an adverse loss history, um, either from a frequency standpoint or a severity standpoint, will have what we call a debit mod, a higher mod that will increase the cost of your workers' compensation. Um, what this is suggesting is that in the event, in those calculations, um, claims brought by COVID-19, regardless of their expense, won't be uh, held against you when they evaluate your XMOD uh, for the following year. So that's a good thing. Definitely sounds like a win. And that is, that's pretty breaking news. So I'm glad that, that, that our listeners were able to join today and kind of at least hear the, the summary of that. Correct. That was an update as of last night. Okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit, go back into benefits. There's something that I've heard um, there has been a lot of, I shouldn't say there's something I've heard. This is a topic that I have answered many, many questions on in the recent few weeks because so many carriers have come out and said we're going to give a premium credit. And uh, when Anthem came out and said, you know, we're giving a medical and a dental premium credit on our employer's invoices, and I believe that's in July. And um, this was a big deal because a lot of employers have Anthem. It's a, it's a brand name, a UHC as well. And as you can see here, it's, there are a plethora of carriers now who have announced they're giving premium credits. It used to be only dental and vision, but now we've got medical carriers as well, premium credits for those lines. And we've got MetLife, Principal, you know, all the way to Aetna Dental, United Healthcare Medical, and dental, Anthem Medical and Dental, note that these premium credits are for fully insured policies only. And that is because you, um, if you're self-insured, if you have a self-insured policy as an employer, you're paying your claims as they go. So during the COVID-19 health emergency, since non-essential medical services or any type of, of uh, services were, uh, were, they ceased. So the carriers were not paying out claims and your self-funded health plan wasn't either. And so you got to experience that decrease in claims in the moment, whereas fully insured policies don't have that luxury to experience that. So the carriers are saying, hey, we're going to give back some money because we recognize that no one went to the doctor, no one went to the dentist, no one was, you know, getting glasses during this period because you couldn't. A lot of offices were closed. And so they're issuing premium credits. 
the reason why I'm talking about this, and I've talked about this several times, is it's not as easy as we want it to be. It, you would think that if your company gets a premium credit on the July bill, let's say, your company can just take it and, and it feels good. It's like, great, we just saved $80,000, let's say. But there are rules that must be followed with regards to these credits. And it starts off with knowing that an employee's cost share of an ERISA plan is generally considered a plan asset, an ERISA plan asset. And this is where the complexity begins because ERISA fiduciary standards apply to ERISA plan assets. And so when I say the employee's cost share, what I mean is that if I pay $50 out of my paycheck, that $50 is an ERISA plan asset, and therefore fiduciary standards apply. So having said that, then let's talk about the ACA MLR rebate rule. Now, some employers are used to how you, the rules around this because they've, they've gotten rebates back before. And the ACA MLR rebate rule shine a spotlight on the ERISA plan asset rules. They've always existed. But because so many employers were getting back this MLR, MLR rebate, it just shined this big spotlight on it. So the DOL issued guidance on how to treat those rebates, which has been really helpful and clarifying for employers on, on, on a better sense of how, how do you handle those credits? How do you handle that rebate? So the premium credits right now aren't related to the ACA MLR rebate rule, but a similar analysis applies, which is why I bring that up. Uh, employers with group health plans are plan sponsors, I, and I know that most of you on the line know that, but I just want to give you a reminder. Plan sponsors have to follow ERISA fiduciary standards. The decision that you make as a plan sponsor should be one that you're comfortable with and can defend if the need ever arises. If you're familiar with fiduciary duties, it's, it's not anything to mess around with. It can be a little bit scary. Uh, and, and there are certain standards that apply in, in how you can, you can act and what you can do with the participant share of that rebate. Okay, so there are a few questions that I get that I want to um, bring up on the screen here. The, the first question is, the employer might ask me, well, can I keep the money? And I'm going to ask you a question. Was the premium paid for entirely by your company, including the employee and dependent portion of the cost? So are you, is your company paying 100% of the employee cost and 100% of the dependent cost? If the answer is yes, then yes, the employer can keep the entire portion. If the participant did not put in any money to pay for these, these premiums, there's no ERISA plan asset at that point. It's all of the employer's money, and so you can keep the entire portion. Of course, the, this is not that common. There are not many employers left that are paying 100% of the cost of a premium. If this is a voluntary plan, so if you're getting a rebate on, let's say, the Anthem Dental Plan, but the Anthem Dental Plan is paid for uh, by the employees, meaning the employees paid 100% of the cost via paycheck deduction. So that's what I mean. If it's a voluntary plan, the employer cannot keep 
the rebate under any circumstances. The, the employer must treat this in a, as an ERISA plan asset and you need to distribute the share of the, or all of the rebate using the ERISA plan asset rules um, because the plan sponsor cannot profit from an ERISA plan. And, and so if you were to keep the entire rebate, even though you paid no portion of the premium, it could be argued that that's a profit since the employer, you know, you didn't make any contributions to begin with. Be very careful there. If it's a voluntary plan, especially dental and vision, which some of those tend to be completely voluntary, you want to make sure you distribute the rebate back entirely to the participant. And I get a question, this question a lot. Do I have to distribute the former plan participants? So let's say the rebate is for the month of May. If the employee who was enrolled is no longer with the company, do I have to go back and track down that person and, and write them a check? Thankfully, DLL guidance has stated that it's not, it's usually not necessary. As a plan fiduciary, you can decide to allocate the amount to current participants only. So we do like to recommend, you know, just stick with your current participants only because the DOL has stated that this is okay. And so we can be very comfortable with that. And also, when must the participants receive their share? There is a time limit here, and it's within 90 days of the receipt of the funds. So if the employer receives the funds on July 15th, or if they receive the rebate or the premium credit on July 15th, and then they have, that means they have 90 days from that date to then give the participants their share of the rebate. All right, it doesn't look like we have any questions on that topic, so good. I hope that's a good sign. I hope that means that it's clear. Actually, it looks like you did get a question there, Michelle. Oh, okay. Can we um, offset current withholdings for insurance with the rebate? Uh, yes, you can. Yeah, great question. Uh, we call that a premium holiday. That's the term that we use most often. And it just means that if I, as an employee, if I'm used to paying $150 a month for, for my medical insurance, and let's say my, my share of the rebate is $100, then I can, uh, for this month, maybe I only pay 50 instead of my 150. And that, we call that a premium ho holiday. I, I most often recommend that this is the way to distribute the share because cutting a check, um, for, you know, say you cut a $100 check, that's not as practical. It costs money to put it in, a, to take, use an envelope, to use a stamp. And, and so a premium holiday is certainly permissible. So again, I called it a premium holiday, but the question was, can we offset current withholdings for insurance with a rebate? The answer is yes, you can. What if someone leaving at the end of June was enrolled all year? Do we have to reimburse them? Well. The DOL says that you don't have, you generally don't have to distribute the former plan, former plan participants. And the premium credit is not for the entire year, like an MLR rebate is. A premium credit for during this period is really for the months of May, June, uh, excuse me, March, half, half of March, April, May, because no one was going to seek healthcare services. So if I'm a planned fiduciary, I'm going to get comfortable with saying, no, I'm going to follow DOL guidance that says that I don't have to distribute it to, to former participants. I can keep it to current participants only. 
Uh, although, again, as a plan sponsor, you are acting as a plan fiduciary. So just because I say that I would be comfortable with it doesn't mean that you would be, you know, because you have your own liability there as a plan fiduciary. So it's important that you are comfortable with my logic as well, and you can adopt it and defend it if necessary. There's another question here. If you get a rebate for a medical plan, do you have to apply it to that specific benefit? Or could you use the medical rebate and apply it to dental to create a dental holiday? That's a good question. I haven't heard this one yet. Um, generally, no. Well, I don't want to say you have to do anything because it's, it's planned fiduciary rules. So you want to ensure that you're treating everyone fairly and doing everything reasonably and not profiting from the plan, the plan asset. Um, if the dental and if the medical and dental participants mirrored each other, so if they were all the same, I would get comfortable creating a dental holiday. If the medical and the dental participants varied, it, meaning let's say you had 150 enrolled in medical, but you only had 50 enrolled in dental, I would not be comfortable with that. I would say, no, you need to apply it to your medical participants only. Uh, so that, that's a question where there is some gray area. This is subjective, and, and you want to make sure that we, when you're thinking through it logically, are you doing the right thing? Is it reasonably? Is it reasonable? Excuse me. We have a question. Would the rebate be a reduction to the Section 125 cafeteria plan or through a cafeteria plan? Yeah, in a sense, yes. It, it wouldn't practically wouldn't work that way because if I Let's say I contribute $150 a month, but now I don't have to contribute anything. That's not taxable. That premium holiday is not a taxable event. And, but however, if you issued me a check for $150, that's a taxable event. So in a sense, I think what you're asking is, can, can we do this without tax consequences under the 125? And the answer is yes, you can give a premium holiday and, and that is the best way to do it as well because it avoids a tax consequence. All right, I think that's it for the question. So let's move on to my, my favorite part of our talk, the toilet paper talk. Jonathan, you missed the first couple of weeks where I was like, I just giggled the entire time because I thought I was so clever with my toilet paper talk. Um, <laughs> and I know you have a marketing background. I know you have a marketing <laughs> background. So in I my do. head, you're, you think this is funny. Like, this is probably really clever. <laughs> <laughs> it's branding, Michelle. They'll never forget it. <laughs> um, so these are relevant issues from last week. And with premium credits, I, I just have gotten so many questions around these. And that's why I just talked about it in depth. So I'm giving you an idea of what I'm hearing and, and from employers. Hearing uh, uh, a lot of office opening, you know, so that that's great news, I think, for all of us. It's uh, a sigh of relief. It, it looks like we might be getting to, getting um, towards something that, that resembles our past life. Um, and so employers are asking, do my employees have to wear face masks? Do we have to do a symptom check? Do we have to take their temperature? And I, so I wanted to point this out, that face masks and symptom checks are required in L.A. County for L.A. County employers. And I found this information referencing the, the uh, chart I talked about earlier on that you can that you can get from Fisher Phillips. You can download it. And it's a county by county list of requirements. 
and and, uh, and LA County does require both a face mask and symptom check for your employer employees. Excuse me. And of course, top of mind is property and casual casualty insurance. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit more about uh, the spotlight that's been shined on the insurance. Sure. Well, you know, nothing like a pandemic to make everyone start to pay attention to um, that real exciting subject of property casualty insurance, um, especially as it relates to issues like business interruption. Um, that was that was certainly an early conversation and uh, revered, revealed itself again in an article from yesterday uh, or this morning, actually, of the L.A. Business Journal talking about how carriers are responding. Um, the reality is that the carriers have designed insurance policies, property casualty insurance policies are ultimately just a contract. And um, while it sounds good to the consumer that I should be able to insure for all things, that's just not financially viable. Um, and uh, as with most contracts, there are inclusions and there are exclusions. And for the most part, um, business interruption coverage for a pandemic has been excluded from standard coverage for a long time, um, SARS, et cetera. Uh, it still shouldn't stop uh, our clients and, and folks on the podcast from evaluating whether a business interruption claim is worth filing. I am finding the carriers to be very um, uh, cooperative in at least receiving the claims in a determination of whether or not there is coverage. Uh, and it's worth filing if only to determine if there's a sublimit of some kind um, that might be available to pick up funds for, say, crisis management or things that are sort of unrelated to the lost income, but are a resource for the carrier. So it's just put insurance top of mind. Uh, and, and how is it responding? I've been spending this money on coverage for a long time. Uh, it's time for it to, to show me what it's worth. Uh, and it's been, I think, frustrating for consumers to, to learn that in this particular circumstance, it's not exactly designed the way they thought it was. Um, Jonathan, so Jonathan, I'm so sorry. I, I have, you know, I have limited experience with property and casualty lines. It, and I, business income. Can you just explain to me for just a second? I think I know what it is, but can you just tell me what? Give me an example of a business income claim. A uh, kind of claim, sure. So the idea that if I'm I'm in business and I suffer a loss that is covered by insurance, I won't be able to generate income as a result of my inability to operate. So business income, and it's also included what's called extra expense coverage, is a line item in most policies so that, say, in the event of a fire, you're unable to operate your manufacturing plant and you aren't able to produce goods. Therefore, you can't sell them. So the period of time while you restore the business, there's lost income to you. And usually a business interruption policy would allow you to recoup those lo that lost income and uh, be covered for the extra expenses you might incur as a business. Maybe in order to get back up and operating again, you need to rent another facility, but rents have gone up since you signed your lease and suddenly the rent on that place is twice as much as you were paying on yours. The Delta, the difference in that rent would be picked up on an extra expense policy in support of uh, you know, th those extra charges against you as you recover. Got it. So not only can I insure the, the material, the equipment, the building, but I can insure the income I would have made had that Correct. not occurred. For, for that particular yes, for particular covered causes of loss, yes. Got it. Thank you. Um, and so there's there's discussion, and I, it's, you may have read about it earlier. I don't think it sounds like you've discussed it here, Michelle, as to how the government is responding to it. There's been a lot of talk about saying, look, uh, consumers have been paying into this. They should they should earn their keep. Um, 
let's pay out on that business interruption policy. And I can understand the fervor around it. And in some ways I can, look, I, I want my, my clients to survive as much as anybody. Um, and, and this is absolutely a disaster for some of them. But the reality is it's just not the way the contracts are written. And to, for the carriers to force, to impose legislation that would cause the carriers to pay out on, premium, on, on losses that they had not collected premiums for could be absolutely devastating to the industry. I know it's hard to see. You look at a balance sheet of an insurance carrier and you're like, gosh, look at those assets. What do you mean it would be devastating? Well, if they had to pay out on the kind of losses we're talking about in a pandemic like this, it would exhaust those resources in a hurry and put a lot of insurance carriers out of business. And the reality is, if you think about it, insurance is the backbone of capitalism. You don't invest in a building if you can't insure it for, the for a fire. You'd never buy a building if you couldn't rebuild it in the event of fire build it down. You would have difficulty hiring employees if your assets were on the line if they ever got hurt and you couldn't get workers' compensation insurance. Uh, to, to impose, not only is there challenges relative to the government in, you know, interfering in really what's a private contract between two parties, that question could be open a whole can of worms, but also the idea that financial impact on the industry could be devastating in the long run, solving a short-term problem potentially, but really causing some long-term impact on, on capitalism and, and business. Um, so it, it it unpacks. I'll, I'll keep going, Michelle, unless you've got some questions. It unpacks I do, the question. I do. Sorry. <laughs> I, do. I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but I have some questions because I, I'm it. learning so much that I find it all fascinating. Um, one, and we do have a question from an uh, from a listener, so I would like to address that first. Can you explain why pandemics are generally excluded while a fire at a specific plant would be covered? So the challenge is the widespreadness of a pandemic. Uh, a fire is localized. It's, it's um, the term they'll use is spread of risk. So if I insure a building, uh, just you as an insured, and I'm going to insure your building, I'm only on the hook for that one loss. But on a pandemic, I as an industry expose myself to everyone who would buy it. And uh, I couldn't collect enough resources and premium to justify it. To, to justify the pay. And it sort of leads, uh, Michelle, we talked about how premium is set, and maybe this is a good lead in to, to unpack that a little bit, because it's a, an important topic for, I think, the audience to understand. Mm -hmm. Premium on the property casualty side is no more than a statistical calculation of the likelihood of a loss. I'll say that again. It's a statistical calculation of the likelihood of a loss with a dollar value to it. So we talked about this yesterday. Michelle, if you had a million dollar building that you knew had a 100% guarantee of being completely lost and you were gonna need a million dollars to build it. In fact, you call me while the fire is raging because you haven't insured it and say, I'm about to lose my million dollar building. I need to buy a million dollar policy, Jonathan. It might sound crazy, but I actually could sell you a policy. Do you have any idea how much I would charge you for it? I'm going to say a million dollars plus uh, some profit for you. Sure. All right. We'll call it profit. I'll, you call it profit. I'll call it overhead. 
But in essence, the premium would be the million dollars because I'm not in the business of being a coupon business to, to reduce that cost. I, it's going to be a million dollars to you and my overhead, which is about 40% for most carriers to be in operation. 60 cents on every dollar you go, they expect to pay in a claim. 40 cents goes to being in operation. So you're talking about a million six at the end of the day. If you were willing to give me a million six, I'd give you a million dollars to pay for that million dollar loss. 100% guarantee. On the flip side, the only way you're gonna have 0% chance of loss is by selling that building. If you don't have a building, you're not gonna pay insurance, property insurance on the building, right? So now I've got my scale. Now I've got my spectrum. I've got a 0% chance of loss because I don't own the building and I've got a 100% chance of loss on a million dollar building at a million six in premium. All the premium you pay in between the total loss and zero loss is some calculated number depending on how well you've managed the risk. So when your broker is going to talk to underwriting and trying to negotiate your premium, I talk to my clients all the time and I explain, uh, I fight a daily battle against a little lizard that says 15 minutes will save you 15% or more in your insurance. It works really well for Geico and it's awesome that you know it's an alliteration and, and, and a commodity like auto insurance, that phrase works but it is not reflective of how property and casualty insurance works. It's, it's more related to what's the likelihood of the loss. And if in 15 minutes you can give me a better story about the controls you're putting in place and the risk management practices you're using to mitigate the loss from occurring, I can move your premium. But if you don't have a better story, their math based on their experience is gonna be what it is to generate that, that cost to you. Um, and I just think we do a poor job of educating the public about how those premiums are set. And so I thank you for the chance to, to try to talk this through with your audience. Yeah, no, I completely agree that it's so, and this is on, this is on the benefit side as well. Although I, I will say developing a premium from a medical plan is not as easy as just taking in the statistical calculation of the likelihood of a loss, but certainly mortality numbers and, and numbers like that are used it's just not as easy so i think it's i, I think it's, it's it's good for us all to know how premiums are developed because then we can work with people like you jonathan to put the right measures in place to 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 lower that premium because if we don't know how it works and why how do we know what's meaningful to impact that premium so it's it's um really helpful and you and i were talking uh, yesterday or the day before and 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 I said, okay, well, what can we do? If I'm listening, what am I, what can I do <laughs> to lower my premium? And you mentioned putting measures in place to convince an underwriter that, that the company has mitigated risk. Can Correct. you, can, can you give an example of like, okay, what would be, uh, what would be one such measure? Well, you're, um, I think relative to COVID, um, the carriers are all asking because uh, they want to know what steps are you taking if you're returning to work to ensure a safe work environment for your employees. So while all of these steps that have been asked in terms of uh, face masks and temperature taking, et cetera, might feel like intrusive on the business, um, it's a perfect live example of the kind of mitigating steps the carriers are looking for to make sure we mitigate the chance of COVID-19 being contracted at the workplace. Um, 
take COVID out of the picture. Now the question is, what mindset, what, what questions can we be asking ourselves for the equivalent of where we've seen losses already? Maybe we've got some loss history that we need to evaluate and trend analysis if we're a larger entity that have caught some work comp losses. Why are those losses happening and what steps can we take to encourage a culture of safety among our employees to keep those losses from happening in the first place? Um, it's why um, back belts were you know, created and invented in the construction industry for heavy lifting concerns, et cetera, right? What are the equivalent uh, uh, measures that can be taken in the organizations that are following you to mitigate the losses from happening? That's work comp. Um, same, same philosophy, same thought process would apply to general liability, to employment practices liability, to property uh, protection. What steps can we take to mitigate the loss? And the better you can tell that story and help your broker tell that story to the underwriting, the better you're going to find yourself in terms of controlling your insurance costs. Makes sense. Makes sense. So yesterday, I think you were telling me about a hardening market. And I'm a little bit um, embarrassed to tell you that I, I didn't, I don't know what that means. But I didn't know what hardening, it's a hard market, it's a soft market. Every yep. time I heard it before, I just nodded my head like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you, tell, us where, tell us where the market is right now as far as property and casualties. So tell us where it is, what that means, and, and talk a little bit about that if you would. I'm really glad you asked that question because as I close out the importance of managing risk to control your own environment, that's absolutely key. But there are external forces at work that will also impact your premiums year over year. And that's what Michelle is addressing here with a hardening market. So we are seeing a what's for the first time, and I've been in this business for almost 20 years, and I've never seen a market quite like this, where capacity uh, for coverage has been extremely limited for a variety of reasons. And it's a simple supply and demand economic calculation that when capacity is limited, it will drive costs up. Um, your audience may feel it personally with their own auto insurance. Um, auto insurance have been on the has been on the rise even for personal auto for the last five years, if not more, primarily because fender benders are no longer bent fenders. Um, bumpers contain cameras and sensors, and they now wrap around the rear wheel wells um, of cars. And to get a bumper replaced in a simple fender bender is upwards of five, six, seven thousand dollars more if you're driving some of the fancier vehicles these days. Um, and the insurance premiums the carrier was charging as these developments happened in autos weren't enough to keep up with those costs. And so we've seen a rise in auto insurance as a result of it. Uh, and because the costs are just greater and they could not continue at the rates they were charging premium to, to justify it. Um, you're also seeing an issue called social inflation over the last few years. Um, this is the result of just changing times and philosophies as it relates to jury verdicts um, and uh, the outcome of those verdicts being incredibly expensive. Um, employment practice claims that probably could have settled for you know, low six figures, under six figures in prior years are now closing in on mid to high to over million, you know, over seven figures um, in uh, judgments. And similarly, the carriers just did weren't charging premium to evaluate that change in in environment. And as a result, we're seeing a rise in in rates. So 
a hard market is the result of those circumstances driving fewer markets in the space and costs go up. The opposite would be a soft market, which we've been experiencing, which is things have been pretty good. The carriers are doing all right with their claims. They can charge less on their rate. That results in a soft market and it ebbs and flows. It always does. This too shall end. When is, you know, in anybody's crystal ball. Okay. So that makes, that makes sense. So but one of our listeners says the hard market, hard market sounds like it's, it's hard to get coverage. Can we simplify it to that if we wanted to just bottom line it? Yeah, it's not that it's hard. It just gets a little bit more expensive. Um, to my point, when they're evaluating the risk, um, it, they know they can. The premium calculation is they consider more than just the risk. So my earlier explanation of the guaranteed 100% loss, um, that's still in their math, but when they know that there are other carriers who aren't riding that risk anymore, then a little bit of supply and demand gets to go in their number as well, right? So if there are 100 carriers willing to write the risk and they're doing that math, it's gonna pressure the market to move down. When there are fewer carriers willing to take on that risk at all, they're just saying, look, not interested, and they walk, the fewer carriers allow those carriers to move their premiums higher because they know no one else is in the game. And if you need the coverage, you kind of have no choices. So being selective and making sure that you've got brokers that have a broad collection of markets um, to try to counter that is really important to evaluate. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Did you have anything, anything to add before we move on? No, I mean, I, it, it, that's, thank you for giving you a chance to tell the story. We can unpack it so much further, but uh, I know you only have an hour and I don't want to geek out too much on your audience on this. I see <laughs> a number of benefits questions still popping up. So I want to make sure you have time for those. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. Thank you so much. I'm, even for me, this is enlightening. So for our audience, I think there's at least, a, hopefully, at least a few people like me in this position. So um, we won't geek out. And I will I will hold on my questions for maybe another time, and then we'll just we'll move on from here. Fair enough. Okay. I wanted to touch on so we're we're totally switching gears to FFCRA and uh, the the requirement that employers pay out paid sick leave or emergency FMLA um, for those employers that are subject to FFCRA. And I know that summer is here. When we talked last summer, it was almost here. And now, because kids are officially out of school, I think for all school districts, summer is here. So I wanted to keep this at the top of your mind as an employer. If you're looking at granting leave, the um, DOL issued some new facts, question number 91, and, and where we have an employee who's been teleworking successfully, but then now that it's summertime, they want to apply for FFCRA to take care of their kids. There's a joke here that it says now they want to cultivate their suntan. Uh, no, I mean, take care of their kids. Um, but this is real. I, I have children at home. I have two seven-year-olds. So I will tell you, this is real. Their kids have been out of school since March, and the employees were able to work. So am I able to ask the employee, what has changed? You know, and maybe can I deny the leave? We talked about this last time. Uh, the short answer here is no, be very careful when you deny the leave. It's, it's rare that you're going to be able to deny the leave here. So the fact that your employee has been teleworking despite having their children at home doesn't mean they cannot now take leave to care for their children uh, for because their, their summer camp or 
place of care is closed. Um, for example, your employee may not have been able to, to take care of their child effectively while teleworking, or maybe um, they made the decision to take the leave to care for the children so that the employee's spouse can work uh, or telework. So they, these and other reasons could be very legitimate, and of course you cannot deny paid sick leave or, or expanded family and medical leave to care for a child whose school is closed or summer camp or summer providers closed for COVID-19 related reasons. And that's the long story, but the short story is no, um, it'd be really hard to deny that leave. You have to look at the facts and circumstances. And number 93 from the DOL, facts. My employees' kids' school closed in March with online instruction only. This Friday would have been the last day of school. The employees in teleworking now wants to start taking school closing FFCRA leave, at least on a part-time basis. I think the employee isn't eligible for the leave because school would have been out anyway. Am I right? Well, kind of, but, but no. You're right that the employee wouldn't be entitled to FSCRA leave for school closing related reasons uh, because school is out. But if the kid's summer child care or the other summer program is closed because of COVID-19, the employee is still entitled to FSCRA leave, FSCRA leave. Now, Think HR has some really great two-minute videos, and one of them is on summer leave and FSCRA, two minutes. And I think it summarizes it very concisely and gives you an idea of um, what you can ask for. And, 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 and one of the lines in the two-minute video is dig deep and trust your employees. And so I, it, maybe that will resonate with you or help you as you're, as you're working through that. Quick update on our guidance wish list. I always bring this up to kind of see what progress we've made. We have guidance on everything that I wanted guidance on, except for ACA measurement and stability periods. So that's still in question. We have no guidance there. It looks like for a little while, it looked like we were gonna see another stimulus package. I have not seen um, a lot of bills in the House or um, the Senate that have pointed to this. This seems to be, the stimulus package does not seem to be coming. So I think that we will not see another one. I want to take a question here. I think there's a question on FSCRA, so I'm going to go back to that. Does an employee have to provide evidence that they are in a school-related program that has closed? Yes, um, similar to a school closing, and I think that employers were, were taking an email, so maybe there was an email from the school um, or some sort of documentation. You could do the same thing for the summer program. Uh, you could. I, I don't know that a lot of employers are asking for that level of, of documentation because it is pretty clear that almost all summer camps are closed. Uh, but And so, no, the employee doesn't have to provide it, but certainly the employer could ask for some sort of documentation. And I'd like to finish up our discussion today with just pointing you to a few different resources. We have the Bolton blog, of course. You can subscribe at boltonco.com slash blog. For benefit-related questions, um, you know, Bolton client, 
clients should contact their team, of course. Same thing for property and casualty if you happen to be a Jonathan Schrader employer. Um, for Bolton clients, you have access to ThinkHR, and ThinkHR has those two-minute videos that I've referenced and several other forms that I think are extremely helpful. So if you haven't been on there in a couple weeks or a couple months, they have a COVID-19 page, and I would recommend checking that out. For employment matters, which I talked about at the beginning of this present, this, this call, I talked about um, the CCPA compliance form and taking temperatures and wearing face masks. That's all sort of employment matters that don't necessarily fall into my expertise, but I have the resources to help answer your questions. I want to point everyone to the Fisher Phillips website. So much great information is there, fisherphillips.com. And right when you get on their landing page, you can scroll to the middle of the page. You can see their data bank, which has all their model notices. You can see their, their legal alerts. There's so much there. It's unbelievable the amount of information they've given the public for no cost. I wanted to point you to those resources as well. They have a back-to-business checklist, an employee symptom questionnaire, manager talking points. So much is on there. So I hope you, you check it out. Going to make sure we don't have any assets. Uh, it looks like we've addressed all of our questions. Really appreciate everyone joining us for another week, and I look forward to the next one. And Jonathan, thank you so much for being a part of this. Really appreciate the opportunity to share. Yep. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.